0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McLarty. All right, let's begin our evening. Heavenly Father... Thank you for gathering us together in this building this evening. I pray that for the next hour we can forget about the cares and the worries of this world and concentrate on your word and concentrate on your character, on your nature, the type of God who we worship and who we serve. Cause us to be obedient people, but cause us to be kind people and gracious people. Continue to knit our hearts together with each other so that we can continue to live as the body of Christ and be a demonstration of the love of Christ in the world as the world continues to get increasingly crazy. Thank you for the sanity that we find in your word and in the knowledge, in the doctrine, in the theology that comes from your word. Thank you for assuring us that even though everything may seem a little scattered, you've got it all under control, and we don't understand it all right now, but we will understand it by and by, so we thank you for that knowledge. So attend to your word this evening, and may the things that we do here tonight be to your glory, to your honor, and to the praise and worship of your Son. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn to the book of Malachi. I don't think I mentioned last week that Malachi simply means my messenger. That's the best translation of the name. Nobody really knows who Malachi is. We don't know much about his background or history or parents or lineage or where he comes from and All we do know is that he was a prophet that showed up in Israel at the time of Nehemiah. About a hundred years after the first Jews had returned to Jerusalem and begun rebuilding the temple and had begun uh, rebuilding the wall. He came in at a time when the second generation of those folks who had returned to Jerusalem we now coming into their own, and they 're doing the things that have been handed to them they 're doing the worship practices they 're growing up in jerusalem they 're there in Judea because their parents and their grandparents had gone back and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the city and as so often happens, even though the first generation that 's actively involved in the activity of God and the deliverance of god and The people who see the miracles of God's deliverance back to Judah and the rebuilding of the temple. Those folks really have a zeal for what's going on because they can see God's hand in it. But the generations after them, their kids and then their grandkids don't have that same level of zeal because, well, they weren't there when all the exciting stuff happened. They were just kind of handed, this is God's law, this is how you do things, this is the worship. So at this point, as Malachi is prophesying, things are not good in Jerusalem. As you're going to see, there's been a drought, and so they don't have a good amount of food. They are still under the headship of the Medo-Persians and soon to be under the headship of the Grecians and then the Romans. And so they really haven't come into their own. They don't have a king. And so things are just not going well. And so apparently they have begun to question, well, where is God in all this? Apparently God doesn't really love us. Yes, he chose us, but apparently he's sort of forgotten about us, which is why Malachi starts Where we looked last week, he starts at, I have loved you. God says, I have loved you. And you're going to say, how? How has he loved us? Because they're looking at their circumstances. They're looking at what's going on. They're looking at their own lack of food and their own intermarrying. They have now begun to even divorce their Jewish wives and have started intermarrying with the surrounding nations people who worship a foreign God, these are things that God has said specifically don't do. Well, you're going to see here that God is going to say to them, even though they're under these terrible circumstances and even though they've lost their excitement and even though they have gone through the drought, he's still going to say, I'm here, I'm with you, I know what I'm doing. And in the course of that, Malachi is even going to get eschatological on them and say to them, this isn't the whole thing. What you're seeing right here and now isn't the end of it. This isn't the way it's going to go on forever. God has bigger plans than that. And so we're going to look tonight at all four chapters of Malachi. It's not a long book. And one last point that I want you to understand as we're looking through it is that it does have a context. It is written during the time of Malachi, and it is directed, you'll see it very clearly, it is directed to the Jews living in Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah. And that is why Malachi says the things he says. I'm emphasizing that again because as I brought up last week, this is not written to the church. Therefore, the very common way that the church will use Malachi to encourage tithing out of you it simply is not a good use of the book of Malachi because Malachi has a particular audience it's written to it has a particular context a particular place in history it has get this right it has nothing to do with the new covenant it has nothing to do with the church it has to do with the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem so you have to remember it in that context And if you want to test me to see whether I'm right in that assessment, all you have to do is look at the rest of the book, look aside the tithing part and look at the rest of it and ask yourself, can this possibly apply to the church? And the answer across the board is going to be no, that doesn't apply to the church. When was the church ever instructed not to intermarry with the people of the surrounding nations? Well, the church never was, but here God is going to hold them guilty for doing that. How does that apply to the church? Well, it doesn't. Uh, When did the church ever bring unclean sacrificial animals to God and have a priesthood and Levites? When did that ever happen? Well, it doesn't, and that's because the book of Malachi simply doesn't apply to the church. But far too often, people get a hold of those tithing verses, and they glom right onto it and start with, you have robbed me. And you'll say, wherein have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. I can't even tell you how many sermons I have heard through the years that incorporate that portion of Malachi in order to inspire more giving out of people. But that's a completely wrong use of the book of Malachi. And personally, I think it's an abuse of God's word because God never said that to the church in order to threaten the church into giving. So that's why we don't threaten people into giving. Make sense? Yes. Okay. We have a fair bit of reading to do tonight, but I think that kind of covers the basics. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So I asked you last week, who's it to? Israel. Israel. Israel, uh, does it say to the church? No. Does it say to Steve? No. No. It has nothing to do with the church now. It has to do with Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Because they're looking at their circumstances. They're saying, this isn't love. How is this love? The answer is, was not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord and yet I've loved Jacob okay they are all descendants of Jacob the Jews are descended from Jacob and they know Jacob I loved Esau I've hated that is something that goes all the way back to the birth of the two children and that the older is going to serve the younger and the younger got the birthright now God is expanding on that and saying I have hated Esau verse 3 And I made his mountain a desolation. Well, that's historically true. That's historically accurate at that point. Edom has been destroyed. The Edomites, the descendants of Esau, have been through a terrible time and Edom has been destroyed. So God is saying, look, if I can destroy Edom because I've said from the beginning that I'm against them, then why do you question that I'm for you since you still exist and you're still in Jerusalem? I have hated Esau and I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance with the jackals of the wilderness, not a really great inheritance. And though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. It's going to be so obvious that I'm against them that even the people around them are going to realize that where Israel is God's chosen people, these people have been under the constant hand of God's punishment. It's just going to be that obvious. There's not going to be any question that God is for Israel and against Edom. So God looks at that bit of history and points out Look, I'm for you, I have maintained you, I have kept you to myself, even as I'm destroying other kingdoms. And your eyes will see this, verse 5, and you will say the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. So God is pointing out I'm not just Israel's God, but my dominion is worldwide dominion. And therefore I raise up kings and I take down kings and I establish nations according to what I choose to do. And I am being magnified beyond the border of Israel. We looked at that last week. Verse 6 is the new stuff. Is it it safe to say that Discussed? said he hated? Esau, saw that. That's just—is that one of his attributes? Yeah. I know, I'm scared to say it and hesitate to say it because I've never thought of God's hate, hatred, as an attribute. I'll make it easier. You're you're struggling with it because we're talking about people, yes. so you don't like the idea of God not liking people. Yes, sir. Okay. But let's talk about hatred as a characteristic of God. Okay. Can you imagine God hating sin? Yes. Okay, then it's an attribute of God, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, that was kind of easy, wasn't it? Yeah. It's a cognate of his holiness. Pardon me. It's a cognate of his. Holiness. It is. It's just part of his holy character, his holy nature. So now God puts them on the stand, essentially, and says. A son honors his father, and a servant honors his master. Then if I am a father, they, by the way, would refer to themselves as the sons of God. They would see themselves as the offspring of the covenant that was made with God. So they would see themselves as the sons of Yahweh. So he says, then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, since you call me God and worship me, then where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, I think we could kind of say that universally. Amen. If we're going to say God is sovereign, shouldn't he engender the respect that a sovereign has? If you're going to say our Father who art in heaven, shouldn't you actually honor him as a father, honor him with your life, with your decisions, with the things he has given you? He deserves his honor. He deserves his respect. That's part of the character and nature of God. So if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts? "O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? He answers, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, How have we defiled thee? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Now, notice where he put this. First off, that phrase, the table of the Lord, is only found here in Malachi. It's found twice, and it seems to be a reference to the altar. And they're bringing not the best of their flocks, not the things that God had told them to bring, but lame animals or blind animals, the animals that they would rather not have breeding at home are the animals that they're sacrificing to God. So in other words, they're not doing what God said to do when they're sacrificing to God, and yet they think their sacrifices are somehow pleasing to God, are somehow satisfying to God. But look at how God says he views that. It's not, well, you tried... Well, you did your best. He says, I take that as you despising my table. When it's time to come worship me and sacrifice to me, I take that as you despising the worship of God. Not just a light thing, not just, oh, I meant to bring a better animal, but God sees it as you despise the table of the Lord. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? Notice again, it's not just a mistake. It's not just, well, I meant to do better than that. Remember last week, I asked you the question, um, how many here have ever sped in the car? And too many of your hands went up. And I said, if the cop pulls you over and you say, "I I didn't know what the speed limit was here. You're still going to get a ticket or you're still going to go to court. You're still going to have to stand before a judge because one of the basic rules of American jurisprudence is that ignorance of the law is no excuse. You don't get to go in front of the judge and say, I didn't know you weren't supposed to shoot people. I thought that was okay. I didn't know. No, Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Well, God is saying the same thing here. I have already told you what kind of animals to bring me. And if you bring your best animals, if you bring the ones that would be really good for breeding, the good, healthy animals, and you destroy the best of what you have for my glory, isn't that just a way of showing that you are dependent on me to continue to provide for you? Mm -hmm. And God said he would. He would continue to give them everything necessary. For their well-being and for food and for the land of milk and honey. Everything would be fine for them if they just brought their best. But they didn't. They would bring blind sacrifices, the animals that weren't good for breeding. And he says, that's evil. And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Okay, that's God being sarcastic. See right there? Now, I have argued so many times that this is one of my more God-like qualities. And I know sometimes you... Well, anyways. God's being sarcastic and saying, really, if you think blind, lame, sick animals are good enough for me and I'm God, next time you have to pay your tax, next time you have to pay the governor... Try paying him with a blind, lame, sick animal and see how that goes over. Well, that's not going to go over well. He's going to insist on the best, and that's just another person. That's just another sinner. And you know better than to do that to a governor. (coughs) But where is my respect? Where is my honor? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? The obvious answer is no. (laughs) Verse 9. But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to you? In other words, just do what I told you to do. Do it my way. And then you're going to receive my favor. And I'm going to be gracious to you. You're going to have plenty to eat. You're going to have plenty of healthy animals. Do you remember what? God did for uh, Jacob when he was attending to Laban's sheep did God increase the flocks that he ended up with absolutely so God's in charge of what animals are born even what color they are and even whether they're spotted but he can make you rich or he can take you down to nothing so it's a good question why not instead entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? This is just God being logical. God's saying, okay, you ought to entreat the favor of God, but you bring him the worst of what you've got. Should he react favorably to you? The answer is obviously no. If the governor wouldn't, God wouldn't. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you that would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar so see they were bringing these animals they were sacrificing these animals they thought they were doing the things that god required at least to the least degree physically possible and god says they're useless they're useless offerings they mean nothing So don't kindle useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure For my name will be great among the nations, among the goyim, among the Gentiles, says the Lord of hosts. But you, while my name's busy being great among the unbelievers, among the Gentile nations, you, the people who are called by my name, you're busy profaning my name. How are they profaning his name? By not doing what he said. It was real simple. Just bring me the right animal. By not doing that, they are making God's name a profane thing. In that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. So God says, if you don't do it my way, if you don't bring the animals I require, that is tantamount to you hating me, profaning my table, and despising what I've required of you. So you also say, verse 13, my, how tiresome it is. Anybody feel that one? I guess I shouldn't have my hand up. I guess I should put my hand down. Yeah, do you you reach that point? I'm not going to drive this, but... But like I said at the beginning, even in our own day, in our own generation, you can kind of understand how that repetition kicks in, and people start thinking, "Oh, it's Sunday. Oh, it's Wednesday. Oh, it's Tuesday. I got to go to men's group. No, I like men's group. I got to go see Micah. But you know, go listen to Jim again, and Jim's going to talk for an hour, and we got to drive, and it's uh, you know that's not my cup of tea tonight. There's football on, or whatever else. It's tiresome. Well, that's what he's saying. You. You know what my commandments are. You know what my requirements are. And yet you have found that tiresome within yourself. My, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. You know what he means? Putting your nose up at it. I don't need that. I don't need to do that. And you bring what was taken by robbery. And you bring what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. So should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? Again, the answer is obviously no. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock, which is what God would require for a sacrifice, and he vows it. But then he sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Notice God even says, I know what you got. I know what you have. I provided it for you. And you're like a swindler. You're like a cheat. You say, even though you've got the good animal, and even though you say, oh, that's for God. That's that's a sacrifice that I have already uh, vowed to God. But then what do you bring me? You bring me a sick, lame animal, a blemished animal, which I said, don't bring. And yet, says the Lord, I am the great king says the Lord of hosts. And my name is feared among the nations. Okay, quick question. Let's do a a quick bit of theology. Okay? Uh, We need to pick on somebody we're going to pick on, Josiah. Here we go. This will be fun. So, Josiah, uh, that's the end of chapter one. Explain to us, please, what does that have to do with the church? It doesn't. It doesn't. He is so theologically adept. (laughs) that he was able in a single quick sentence to sum up what I was driving at. That doesn't have anything to do with the church directly. It may tell us something about the character and nature of God and may inspire us to react to the character and nature of God. But when was the last time any of you were required to kill an animal for God? When was the last time you had to bring a ram or an ox to church? And please don't. If you have a ram or an ox at home, leave them at home. But that's not the sacrifice that God requires. The final sacrifice has been made. And it was a perfect sacrifice and God fully accepted it. So what does all this have to do with us? Well, nothing. What about the principle the thing? I just said, in principle, we can understand the character and the nature of God. But if you're saying in principle, we need to bring animals to God, then no. In principle, of course, us giving and things like that. If I were going to preach a giving message, which I'm perfectly willing to do starting now, since you brought it up. No, 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 no. If I were going to preach a giving message, I'd go to the New Testament where there are plenty of passages that talk about appropriate New Covenant grace giving. And I would teach my giving message based on that. I would not go here to rules that are required of Israel that aren't required of us and somehow allegorize those in order to get money out of you. With that. Well, good. I'm glad you agree with that. But, but the thing, thinking about it, is um, it says that the is for our learning. It is. Yeah. And for our instruction. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, like I just said, would it be a convincing giving message since you brought up giving? And would it be an appropriate use of the Bible, knowing that we have all these new covenant passages about giving? They that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Let every man give according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. All those passages are written to the church and do apply to the church. So if we're going to preach giving, shouldn't we go there? Why would we go here? Okay. All right, chapter 2. And now, this commandment is for you, O priests. He's going to talk about the Levites. He's going to talk about the priests the separated tribe that is supposed to serve in the temple. And then the tithes belong to them. God is going to provide for them and take care of them. So he says, If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. What he's talking about is you have been saying to the people as they bring their sacrifices, you have been giving them the blessings of God and you have been speaking words of blessing over their sacrifices, over their gifts. But because you're not doing it the way I require, I'm going to curse your blessings. While you think you're handing out my blessings to people, I'm going to make sure to curse those blessings. Now he's going to describe how he's going to do that. And it's very, very colorful language. In fact, I have heard preachers before try to clean up this section of Malachi. Because they think they're kind of saving face for God. But God is perfectly willing to be really blunt. Here's what he says. Verse 3, Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. What is he talking about? Well, one of the ways that they were instructed to prepare the feasts and to prepare the sacrificial animals is that they had to take out the inner parts where the the King James uses the word the awful, which I like to pronounce the awful. And they would take the part of the digestive system that holds the refuse, and they would have to take that out and not burn it with the sacrifice. That was a separate thing. And so that is the refuse of the sacrifices. And if the priest did not do that they would be ceremonially unclean that is why that refuse and the awful had to be separated from the sacrifice God says while you're busy doing your sacrifices because you think your hands are clean in the midst of all this I'm not just going to dirty your hands I'm going to rub it in your face I'm going to make you so ceremonially unclean that it's going to be an embarrassment to you... how unclean both you and your offspring are going to be. I will spread refuse on your faces... the refuse of your feasts... and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know... that I have sent this commandment to you... that my covenant may continue with Levi... says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him speaking of the whole tribe, was one of life and peace. And I gave those commandments, that covenant to him as an object of reverence. In other words, they were supposed to revere me. They were supposed to understand with each animal that they sacrificed that this was all part of the worship, the sacrifice, the reverence of me as their Lord and master. So that he revered me and so that he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. In other words, I told him exactly what to do. If he just repeated what I said, then he would instruct the people in truth, in righteousness, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from their iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So how is the priest supposed to be a messenger of the Lord of hosts? How is he supposed to preserve knowledge? And how is he supposed to give instruction to people? By saying what God said. God has already laid it out. Now you, as my priest, just recite what I said. When the people come to you, you give them the right instruction. You are a messenger from the Lord of hosts. Verse 8. But as for you... You have turned aside from the way, and you have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction." We don't know exactly what that partiality was outside of they obviously were accepting unclean animals and blind animals and lame animals from people who had good animals and should have sacrificed them. And rather than instructing them in the ways of righteousness, they were just accepting whatever the people brought and not teaching them the ways of God properly. Hmm. But then he's going to go even further and say, not only have you not taught the people But you yourself haven't followed my ways because you have intermarried with women who follow foreign gods. Verse 10 says, do we not all have one father? Has not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which the Lord loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign God. See, God doesn't just wink at that. God says, you've profaned my sanctuary. I told you not to intermarry with the foreign women. You did intermarry, and then you came into my sanctuary and acted like everything was fine. And you continued sacrificing. And you preferred certain men, and you let people get away with bringing me lame and halt and sick animals, even though they had well and healthy animals to sacrifice. So in all these ways, you've committed these profanities in my temple. As for the man who does this, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. What he's saying there is anybody who does this, anybody who is not keeping my word and has married a foreign woman and is chasing after foreign gods, anybody who's bringing me sacrifices that I haven't required, that man needs to be cut off from the tents of Jacob. That might mean his posterity or he's going to have no posterity so that eventually his family name is going to be erased from the annals of israel it may also mean that he himself needs to be sent out of the camp and go live among the gentiles because he's not living like the jews are required to live verse 13 says and this is another thing you do you cover the altar of the lord with tears with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering of or accepts it with favor from your hand how could they tell that god was not accepting the offerings that they were bringing well they weren't having any peace with god he wasn't providing for them he's bringing about a a plague he's bringing about times of hunger and a drought and it is very clear to them that god is not accepting their sacrifices and so then you come and you weep at the altar And you come and you groan at the altar. You come and you beg me. Here's one of those places where perhaps, Sandy, we can apply this even to us. You come before God and you beg and you plead with tears. But meanwhile, you're not doing what I said to do. I've already given you the requirements. You're not doing the requirements. But oh, you're quick to come to me and beg me to be merciful to you. God's saying, why? Why should I be merciful to you, considering that you're constantly in rebellion and have demonstrated that you actually hate and have profaned the worship that I have prescribed for you? This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand, and yet you say, why? Why? For what reason? Why doesn't God accept my sacrifice? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do? While he was seeking a godly offspring, take heed then to your spirit and let no one or none of you deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and I hate him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. I find that really interesting. That you can come to God over and over again, please God, begging God, praying out to God, crying out to God, weeping all these tears. And yet, if you're not doing what he has told you to do, at some point he becomes wearied by it. Because what he requires, what he expects of you is not only that you come to him for help, but that you come to him in obedience. You have wearied the Lord with your words. And yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He's just told the Levites, you're you're playing favorites. There are people who have good, healthy animals that are bringing me sick animals. And you're accepting them and you're sacrificing them. I'm going to smear it all over your face. By your saying to them that what they're doing is good, by not giving them the proper instruction, by not saying to them what God has said to you, by doing that, God says, then you're saying to them your evil is good. God accepts your evil. You tried. You gave it your best shot. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God? Of justice. Chapter 3. Oh, end of chapter 2. Theological question. Micah, what does that have to do with the church? I gotta go with Josiah's answer. Yeah, kind of hard to apply that to the church without a whole lot of allegorizing. You gotta allegorize like mad if you're gonna say that applies to the church. Yes, we can learn about the character of God and the nature of God. Yes, we can understand that God expects that when he says something, we respond to it. Yes, we can understand that God requires his worship. Okay, fair enough. But sacrificing animals that are lame, halt, and blind, or intermarrying with the Middle Eastern folks, that doesn't apply to us. Chapter 3, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. All of a sudden... He's looking forward, looking forward to the coming of Christ and eschatologically to the ultimate end of Christ. He's telling the people of Israel, this isn't the end of it. Just because you look around right now and things are tough doesn't mean this is the end of it. God has not forgotten you. God does love you and he is going to keep every word. So be sacrificial and worshipful to him. So be faithful to what he says and what he has instructed. He's not done yet. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Didn't we just read that on Sunday? We did. The messenger of God, Christ himself, the Lord, came suddenly to his temple. And what did he find when he got there? It was just as bad as it was under Malachi. Mm. Nothing had actually improved, which is why he overturned the money changers tables and drove out those that traded and sold and and said, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And you've made it into a den of thieves. He's going to come suddenly into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight That covenant that you delight in, that Abrahamic covenant, that promise, he's the messenger of that covenant. And behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But, now it gets really eschatological, day of the Lord stuff. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like people are going to run to the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and shout to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the lamb? Well, that's what he's predicting here. Who's going to be able to stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and he's like a fuller's soap refiner's fire. He's going to burn away the dross fuller soap. He's going to clean people up. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. Do you understand what a smelter and purifier of silver does? He uses heat and fire in order to separate pure silver from the dross, from the ore. And that's what Christ is going to do. He's going to separate the pure silver from the dross. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi to refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah. some Messiah? Pardon me? Can we stop right here? You want to stop and sing the Messiah at this point? Just part of it. Okay, go ahead. We'll wait. I want all four parts. I think it's eight, actually. At the end, I'll let you sing, and he shall reign forever and ever. (laughs) (laughs) Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers. And against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, are you not consumed? How guilty are they? He's saying what you deserve is to be completely wiped out. That's what you deserve. I told you about the birthday card that I got from Micah, right? told you that on Sunday. That he scratched out you deserve a good day or happiness or joy or whatever he said. He scratched that out and he wrote what you deserve is hell forever. And, And what God is saying to the Israelites here. You deserve to have been wiped out a long time ago. And God says, the only reason you aren't is because I don't change. I made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I made a promise to David that his descendant was always going to sit on the throne and rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. And because I'm faithful to my own word, that's the only reason you're not wiped out. Shall we apply this? Mm. Perhaps we should. Anybody here want to say you're guilty? Mm -hmm. Get those hands up. There better be every hand in this place going up. Yeah. So why weren't you destroyed? Why aren't you in hell today? That's what you deserve, according to Micah. That's what you deserve. Or maybe it's just me that he thinks only deserves that. But... (laughs) That's what you deserve. Theologically, we know that's what you deserve. Even if we're speaking doctrinally about, let's say, the five points of Reformed theology, it starts with total depravity. If you're totally depraved, then you deserve hell forever. Mm -hmm. Why don't you get that? It's not because of you. It's not because you cleaned yourself up. It's not because you got good enough now. It's because God, who doesn't change, made promises to his son and elected himself a people before the foundation of the world. And those people cannot be lost and cannot lose their own salvation because God is faithful to the promise he made to somebody else. Not even to you, to his son. And you are just the recipient of the grace and the mercy that is part of the fact that he chose you before the foundation of the world. So God says it right here to the Jews. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, that's the reason, O sons of Jacob, that you're not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? And now suddenly, the book of Malachi is about the church. At this exact moment. Because verse 8 says, Will a man rob God? And yet you're robbing me. But you will say, How have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole church of you. Okay, it says the whole nation of you, but we can't point that out. We just have to say the whole church of you, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Because as you know well, your local church is now the storehouse for Israel somehow. That the Levites eat out of and the widows and the orphans. So that there may be food in my house because of course the church is God's house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, and then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful church, says the Lord of hosts. Is that the right reading? How, I ask, by what theological structure can you read the whole rest of Malachi and understand that it has to do with Israel and is addressed to Israel and has to do with the historic realities of Israel? How can you say the whole book of Malachi, including the curses, is all about Israel? But that one section right there about tithing, that's for the church. That means you. You can't do it. There's no logical, consistent, theological, biblical, exegetical way to do it. Has anybody ever heard a message like that? Yeah, and all your hands go up again. Yes, because we've heard it over and over again. It's a terrible abuse of scripture because it takes away from you the freedom to give out of grace and it puts you under bondage. And Paul said, don't give under compunction. And yet if you give according to the threat that God's going to get you, and you give so that he'll rebuke the devourer for your sake, you are giving under compunction. So even the idea of going to this text undermines the theology of Paul. I'm much more comfortable with the Pauline theology of giving. Have I said enough about that? I've been saying it for years. But this is the first time that we've seen it in the context of the whole book of Malachi. I hope that cements it once and for all. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. I'm in chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. And yet you say, well, what have we ever spoken against you? And you said... It is vain to serve God. In other words, it's pointless. I mean, look what we're doing. We're doing all the stuff. We're doing all the sacrificing. We're showing up. We're doing all this. And we're still struggling. So there's no value to it. By the way, is the purpose of worshiping God so that you can get stuff out of it? No. Mm-mm. What's the only proper reason to worship God? Because he's worthy of worship. Because he's, stop me when this is complicated, because he's God and you're not, and he requires worship, he requires sacrifice, he requires that he gets all the praise and the glory, and that's the only reason you do it. Now, if you gain benefit, like he provides you food and clothing every day, he gives you health, he takes care of. You. Those are wonderful, gracious blessings he has poured out on you, and you certainly ought to be thankful for them, but that's not the reason you worship him. You worship him because he's God, and because he is the only personality if I can use that word, he is the only being in the universe who actually deserves worship. You don't deserve worship. Anybody here think they deserve worship? You don't deserve it. He deserves worship. So he can say, You have said it is vain to serve God, and what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed, and not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape now the leaders within Israel the Levites, the priests should have instructed the people properly in such a way that they would not call the arrogant blessed, what he means is you get caught up in your own ego, in your own pride and you start thinking, well what's the point? and he says you put God on trial which by the way, God is not on trial you are He's the judge, you're not. And he says, and then you don't call people out for that. They're arrogant against me, thinking that their opinion of me and their pride and their ego is actually more valid than what I, the Lord of hosts, have said. What I have presented to them, what I have taught them. And yet you call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God. And escape. You let them get away with that. Verse 16 Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Notice here, don't miss the contrast. Righteous and wicked. How are they delineated? Those that serve God and those who don't. Because it's wicked not to serve God. It's not just another decision, another choice, a lifestyle decision, it's wicked not to serve God, and it's righteous to serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Does that sound like Peter talking about the conflagration to come? How the elements are going to burn up with a fervent heat? And then Peter takes the time to say, knowing that's the truth, what kind of people should you be? Verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go forth and skip about like calves in a stall. Anybody ever raised calves? I'm assuming that calves in a stall are really happy creatures. I don't know this firsthand. I have no knowledge of this. But given the context and the way it's written, I'm guessing that calves in a stall are happy-go-lucky little creatures. And you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet, on that day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, unless I come and smite the land with a curse. It's the end of the Old Testament. The last word in the Old Testament, as I often point out, is curse. Then there's 400 years of silence from God. And then John the Baptist appears in Jerusalem acting like Elijah, not getting his hair cut, wearing clothing made of animal skins and and eating locusts and honey. And he starts prophesying. And Jesus makes the connection between John the Baptist and Elijah. So the Old Testament ended with a direct reference to Elijah. I'm going to send Elijah. And the next prophet that appears on the stage of history 400 years later, Jesus connects with Elijah. And even Gabriel says to John the Baptist's father, he's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So God knows what he's doing is the point. There is a direct connection between the Old Testament ending and the New Testament beginning. This Elijah connection. And after 400 years... Finally, a prophet's going to appear in Jerusalem again and do exactly what he said here. He's going to pave the way for the righteous branch, pave the way for the very son of God, pave the way for the one who Moses said, when he comes, listen to him. So it's all been Moses for 1,400 years. It's Moses, Moses, Moses. Even at the end of Malachi, there's still another 400 years to come. Listen to Moses. Whatever I said to you at Horeb, do that. But then Jesus comes and suddenly you see the one who even Moses said when he gets here listen to him which is why Jesus could walk around saying you've heard it said but I say and that's the beginning of the teaching and the development of what becomes the new covenant and as we saw last night in Romans 10 that's the end of the old covenant. So there. We've gone through the entire Old Testament history from Genesis all the way to Malachi. And and I hope by now, after these many, many, many years, that you've got all the details of the Mosaic Covenant. Even if you don't have every detail and every 613 rules planted in your head, I hope you see the impossibility of achieving your own personal righteousness by following Moses. It can't be done. Now that we've looked at it in detail and have seen that for 1,400 years, even Israel, who God kept saying, do it or I'll curse you, and God kept cursing them, and God kept taking them into foreign nations, and God kept taking them out of Jerusalem, God kept correcting them, and he even says here, do it, do it, do it again, and yet when Jesus walked on the planet, he still had to go to the leaders in Jerusalem and say, you're not doing it. So what does that tell you? Next time somebody says to you, you know, if you want to be really good, really righteous, really please God, all you got to do is the stuff Moses said. All you got to do is tithe. All you got to do is maybe keep the Sabbath. All you got to do is just make up any Moses rule. Pick a Moses rule. All you got to do is don't move a boundary stone. All you got to do is not mix fabrics. Just pick a rule out of Moses. There's just simply no part of the law of Moses that can achieve genuine righteousness. It's only through Christ and the finished work of Christ that people as desperately wicked as us can end up being saved. And because God doesn't change and because he is a covenant keeping God and because he is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to him, only then can there actually be salvation because he doesn't change regardless of how many times we mess it up. So we're going to be obedient. We're going to follow as best we can. But all our hope, all our forward-looking, all of our desperation for eternity, is based in Christ. And none of it in ourselves, in our flesh, or in Moses. Now we've read all the Moses we need to read for the moment. Next week, Tom's going to be up here. He told me tonight that he might even bring a court case. We don't know yet. (laughs) The week after that, I think Steve's up. And you know, last week, you complained, sort of, that it's harder to preach when the pastor's here. That week, Janine and I won't be here. So you're all, good, good. (laughs) Good. We're going to be up in Cincinnati for a few days, so we'll be gone that week. Well, happy anniversary. Well, thanks. All right. I, I shudder to ask, but are there any questions about the Old Testament? <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be here for a while. <laughs> I'm going to go back tonight and find out what the date was when we started Genesis, because it's what taken us a do? long time. Is it the time to start over? To just cover that, huh? So it's, time time to to start over again. it's time to start over again. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, what? <laughs> On the surface, it's very easy to kind of connect with the rationale of the sacrifices being these blemished type sacrifices because you you know they they were thinking we're about to tear this cap into bits <laughs> and it's going to be murdered and we're going to tear its and out and all that. What does it matter if it's lame? Yeah. And you could connect with that, and that could make some sense. But then when you read in the New Testament that that was the type pointing to Christ, and you read that he's the spotless, unblemished lamb, you see why it was so important for them to be these cream of the crop, top of the line yeah. calves. Absolutely. God was always teaching, wasn't he? Right. Just always pointing toward the final sacrifice. Mm Look at all those Old Testament saints watching history unfold, saying, Oh, now I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Who I guarantee are worshiping God in righteousness, who are recognizing that they didn't get there for any other reason than God's faithfulness Mm -hmm. rather than their own. Anything else? Any other comments? It's good stuff. Now, in a couple of weeks, after some of the deacons and men of the church have preached on Wednesdays, we will start a new book. So if you want to get your choices in, send me an email. Let me know what you'd like to go after next. I sort of think I know, but we'll see where it actually ends up. Hezekiah. The book of Hezekiah. Can you not talk anymore? Can you impossible? Awesome. Oh. <laughs> Have you not ever watched a congregation <clears throat> where the preacher stood up and said everyone turned to Hezekiah chapter three and they start fumbling through their Bible? I watched it happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm really, I just I got nothing. I'm... All right, well then.